0: Have you found yourself lately asking questions like, how can people be so stupid, or how can some politicians make such foolish decisions? This is Dennis Peterson, and thanks for joining me today on Reclaiming Your Legacy. Have you talked to a government school 20-something lately? Ever asked them some simple questions about, you know, geography or history or the Constitution? Do you think any of your friends might be puzzled about what could possibly be the root cause of the destruction of even God's own chosen people? Hosea 4.6 says in the Bible, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Do you think that observation potentially alerts us today to make choices to change the course of human events? What happens when people are steered away from ignorance and toward the knowledge of God and his laws? Over time, That naturally leads to liberty, both personal and public. It's been said that ignorant and free can never be. For a civil society to be capable of self-government, we must not only be moral, but informed. If we're not informed, we'll tend to vote for the politician who promises the most. We'll vote for more and bigger government until one day we have total government. An uninformed electorate, whether moral or immoral, will vote itself into slavery. Only a moral, well-informed electorate will vote for people of principle, those who will limit the government to its proper role. And that's why there must be sensible qualifications for voters, like being proven citizens, for starters. And the founders of America deemed that they had to have skin in the game as property owners in order to vote. Convinced that the people are the only safe depositories of their own liberty, and that they are not safe unless enlightened to a certain degree, I have looked on our present state of liberty as a short lived possession unless the mass of the people could be informed to a certain degree. That was Thomas Jefferson writing to a friend in 1805. Jefferson said it this way If a nation expects to be ignorant and free, in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. When do you suppose the concept of equal rights began in human history? My friend Bill Federer, host of the American Minute at AmericanMinute.com, researches and presents historical gems that are so relevant to what is going on in today's world. He sent me some short articles recently that really got my attention. Why? because they have so much to do with the need of our children's generation to be well-informed and involved according to godly wisdom as found in the Bible. You know, the earliest writing known was over 4,000 years ago. Sumerian cuneiform, as it's called, was on clay tablets in what is now Iraq. Perhaps just as old are Egyptian hieroglyphics on stone and papyrus, plus the Chinese pictographs being discovered on very ancient artifacts. Writing was first used to keep track of what the king owned and then to keep record of king's decrees, genealogies, and astronomy and such. Only kings, upper classes, and scribes could read. Egypt, in Moses' time, had a literacy rate of less than 1% of the people. With thousands of cuneiform and hieroglyphic characters, it was difficult to learn to read. The lower classes and slaves were not allowed to learn to write. Do you suppose this enabled governments to make the illiterate masses completely dependent on them? When kings had their people fearfully obedient to them, why would they want them to learn enough to think critically for themselves? Pre-Civil War, America experienced something similar. Southern Democrat states made it a crime to teach slaves to read. Kings ruled by honoring and rewarding those who obeyed them and by a dishonoring and striking fear of death into those who didn't. Think about this. The first well-recorded instance in history of an entire nation ruling itself without a king was Israel, when it broke away from Egypt's Pharaoh around 1500 BC. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, he not only had the law, he had it in a 22-character alphabet that was so easy to learn the entire nation could read it. Israel, coming out of Egypt, so far as history can tell us, was the first nation to develop an entirely literate population. Not only were the children of Israel free, they could maintain their freedom because they could read. And not only could they read the law, they were required to do that because the law was addressed to each individual citizen. An ignorant people can't be a free people. Intelligence is essential to liberty. So what enables a nation or society to be capable of self-government? If they're not educated in basic life skills, in history, and morality, how can they understand and exercise their civic responsibilities? Throughout history, wherever there's a king, the friends of the king are more equal. Those who are not friends with the king are less equal. And those who are enemies of the king are traitors to be executed for treason. For Israel's first four centuries, there was no king. The nation was supposedly ruled by the law and everyone was bound to learn it, obey it, and be judged by it. The judges were the representatives God raised up to lead generations who rose and fell out of favor with their God for their actions. The law made clear that there was no respective persons in judgment. Rich and poor were to be treated the same. Male and female made in the image of the Creator were on the equal footing with the law in their respective roles in society. Even the foreign-born stranger who lived among them was under the same law. This began the concept of equality. There was no royal family to give favors, no superior or inferior class, no caste system. Israel's divinely inspired experiment in self-government was dependent on one thing, the priests teaching the people to read the law. Think of it. The law was empowered when people were taught three things. There's a God who knows every thought and sees every action. God wants you to be fair. And, thirdly, God will hold you accountable in the next life. When the priests neglected teaching the law, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the country fell into moral chaos. Out of the rebellious moral chaos, Israel got a totalitarian ruler. King Saul soon killed a large number of the priests, with the notable exception of Abiathar, who escaped to David. The pattern was clear. For a country to maintain order without a king— the citizens had to be educated in moral self-control because of their accountability to God. This was understood in every community of America's colonial era. Literacy and Bible-based morality were high priorities. After America's victory for independence, immigrants flooded into America. The 1787 Northwest Ordinance paved the way for westward expansion. The creation of common schools, as they were called, assured cultural literacy. After graduation from Yale, Noah Webster became a lawyer in New York and wrote the famous blue-backed speller. It sold over a hundred million copies. For generations, American schoolchildren learned letters, morality, and patriotism from Webster's spellers, catechisms, history books, and his Webster's Dictionary. No wonder he is known as the father of American education. Webster wrote The education of youth lays the foundation on which both law and the gospel rest for success. Without religious and moral principles deeply impressed on the mind and controlling the whole conduct, science and literature will not make men what the laws of God require them to be, and without both kinds of knowledge, citizens cannot enjoy the blessings which they seek. Pretty good stuff coming from Webster, don't you think? Noah Webster wrote in On the Education of Youth in America, Printed in Webster's American magazine in 1788, in some countries the common people are not permitted to read the Bible at all. In ours, it's as common as a newspaper, and in schools is read with nearly the same degree of respect. Well, I wish that were the truth today, don't you? In advice to the young included in his 1832 History of the United States, Noah Webster wrote, Republican government loses half of its value where the moral and social duties are imperfectly understood or negligently practiced. Webster wrote, To exterminate our popular vices is a work of far more importance to the character and happiness of our citizens than any other improvements in our system of education. He said, If men are wretched, it's because they reject the government of God and seek temporary good in that which certainly produces evil. He published his translation of the Holy Bible, the Webster Bible, in 1833, stating, The Bible is the chief moral cause of all that's good, and the best corrector of all that's evil. In human society, the best book for regulating the temporal concerns of men, and the only book that can serve as an infallible guide to future felicity, or happiness. In his 1834 work entitled, Value of the Bible and Excellence of the Christian Religion, Webster wrote, the Bible must be considered as the great source of all the truths by which men are to be guided in government as well as in all social transactions. Noah Webster wrote in The History of the United States, 1832, All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. America's second president, John Adams, wrote, "Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the government of any other." Our human civil rights are a gift that comes directly from our Creator, and when God created man for the dominion of his created earth, he gave mankind certain unalienable rights distinct from anything the world of animals could appreciate. When we recognize that human rights existed prior to men joining together to form governments, then we can understand that the only purpose of government is to protect those rights. The purpose of government cannot be to grant us rights that we were created to enjoy, neither can it be to sovereignly dictate those basic natural laws and rights out of existence. That's what makes them unalienable." our biblically based and providentially established form of government in America is founded on this fundamental truth. If we ever abandon that fact, personally or collectively, we as a people will be ultimately destined to lose the republican form of government that allows us the liberty that can only be maintained by an enlightened and moral people who know that they depend on divine protection and provision. A structure cannot endure if it's built on a foundation of lies. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Just six weeks after the battles of Lexington and Concord, Harvard College's President Samuel Langdon in 1775 spoke to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress. America was still a British colony, not a sovereign nation. Samuel Langdon's address was titled, Government Corrupted by Vice. Do you think our preachers today could help our churches learn from his remarks? Listen to just a few of them. He said, They attempted by a sudden march of a body of troops in the night to seize and destroy one of our magazines formed by the people merely for their own security. The unwelcome British government troops had destroyed one of the community's bunkers for storing ammunition for local protection. The fire began first on the side of the king's troops. But for what? Because they have made a noble stand for their natural and constitutional rights, in opposition to the machinations of wicked men, aiming to enslave and ruin the whole nation. Langdon continued. We must keep our eyes fixed on the supreme government of the eternal king as directing all events, setting up or pulling down the kings of the earth at his pleasure, that for the sins of a people God may suffer the best government to be corrupted or entirely dissolved, and that nothing but a general reformation can give ground to hope that the public happiness will be restored. He was writing about England then, but think how this applies to us now. Harvard President Langdon spoke further, saying, The kingdom of Israel was brought to destruction because its iniquities were full, because there remained no hope of reformation. Their government degenerated in proportion as their vices increased till few faithful men were left in any public offices. At length, when they were delivered up for seventy years into the hands of the king of Babylon, scarcely any remains of their original excellent civil polity appeared among them. Langdon added, When a government is in its prime, Virtue prevails. Everything is managed with justice, prudence, and frugality. But vice will increase with the riches and glory of an empire, and this gradually tends to corrupt the Constitution and, in time, bring on its dissolution. This may be considered not only as the natural effect of vice, but a righteous judgment of heaven especially upon a nation which has been favored with the blessing of religion and liberty and is guilty of undervaluing them and eagerly going into the gratification of every lust. Langdon went on. They were a sinful nation who had forsaken the Lord and provoked the Holy One of Israel to anger. Their princes were rebellious against God, seizing the property of the subjects and robbing the public treasury. Everyone loved gifts. They were influenced in everything by bribery. They even justified and encouraged the murder of innocent persons to support their lawless power. And God, in righteous judgment, left them to run into all this excess of vice to their own destruction because they had forsaken Him. The public greatly suffered. And the people groaned and wished for better rulers and better management, but in vain they hoped for a change when the spirit of religion was gone and the infection of vice was become universal. The whole body being so corrupted, there could be no rational prospect of any great reformation in the state, but rather of its ruin. Reverend Samuel Langdon continued his address to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, saying, Yet if a general reformation of religion and morals had taken place, and they had turned to God from all their sins, If they had again recovered the true spirit of their religion, God, by the gracious interpositions of his providence, would soon have found out methods to restore the former virtue of the state and again have given them men of wisdom and integrity. We have rebelled against God. We have lost the true spirit of Christianity, though we retain the outward profession and form of it. We have neglected the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his holy commands and institutions. Now, this is the president of Harvard University. He went on and said, Let us repent and implore the divine mercy. Let us amend our ways and our doings, reform everything that has been provoking the Most High, and thus endeavor to obtain the gracious interpositions of providence for our deliverance. May the Lord hear us in this day of trouble. We will rejoice in His salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Wherefore is all this evil upon us? Is it not because we have forsaken the Lord? Can we say we are innocent of crimes against God? No, surely it becomes us to humble ourselves under His mighty hand, and He may exalt us in due time. If God be for us, who can be against us? The enemy has reproached us for calling on His name and professing our trust in Him. They have made a mock of our solemn fasts and every appearance of serious Christianity in the land. May our land be purged from all its sins." Then the Lord will be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, and we will have no reason to be afraid, though thousands of enemies set up themselves against us around about. That was the spirit that emboldened the colonists to declare their independence from Britain the next year and fight five years for their lives because of these convictions. More recently, on February 8, 2011, Harvard professor Clay Christensen, a professor of business administration, observed, Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston, and I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, Yes, I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. Now get this. He went on to say, The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. Professor Christensen went on to say, My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend, Dr. Christensen said, heightened a vague but nagging concern I harbor inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they, too, need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Listen to this quote. It's from The Strenuous Years by President Theodore Roosevelt, back in 1910. He said, It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions? who spends himself in a worthy cause, who, at the best, knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. That was President Theodore Roosevelt. Perhaps one of the most timely statements made by Benjamin Franklin for us today is this one. Only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. And, of course, Edmund Burke chimes in with this well-spoken comment. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains on their own appetites, in proportion as their love to justice is above their rapacity in proportion as their soundness and sobriety of understanding is above their vanity and presumption, in proportion as they are more disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and good in preference to the flattery of knaves. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere, and the less of it there is within, the more there is without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. That was Edmund Burke in 1791. How appropriate for our society today, wouldn't you say? Alexis de Tocqueville said despotism may govern without faith, but liberty cannot. Religion is much more necessary in the republic than in the monarchy. How is it possible that society should escape destruction if the moral tie is not strengthened in proportion as the political tie is relaxed? And what can be done with a people who are their own masters if they are not submissive to the deity? For a Frenchman back in the early 1800s like Alexis de Tocqueville You can understand why the concept of responsibility and accountability to a God in heaven holds sway even in just secular minds who at least acknowledge the presence of a creator God. The father of the American Revolution was Samuel Adams. He said, If ever a time should come when vain and aspiring men shall possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its experienced patriots to prevent its ruin. James Madison, our fourth president, wrote a thoughtful insight. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a pure fantasy. We don't depend on their virtue or put confidence in our rulers, but in the people who are to choose them. Psalm 94 gives us a question to ask. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers, or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Sam Adams again said, The sum of all is, if we would most truly enjoy the gift of heaven, let us become a virtuous people. Then shall we both deserve and enjoy it. While on the other hand, if we're universally vicious and debauched in our manners, though the form of our constitution carries the face of the most exalted freedom, we shall in reality be the most abject slaves. It's now become apparent in our modern society just how prophetic that forecast from two and a half centuries ago really is. What are we individually going to do about it? What can we do about it? Don't miss the bonus segment of today's program at ReclaimYourLegacy.com and search for Informed People Can Be Free. Check for your favorite podcast platform and see other shows worth sharing with your friends. And while you're there, if the Holy Spirit impresses you to help us continue on this channel, I want you to know that I deeply appreciate your response to His direction in your heart. And when we all do our part in the battle, our Lord gets all the glory and accomplishes His goals in His time. We take seriously that we are appointed for such a time as this. Thanks for joining me today. This is Dennis Peterson. Informed or ignorant, which will it be for you and your family, let alone your generation? God doesn't expect all of us to be a Jefferson or a Franklin or any of the genius founders of America who uniquely blended their vast knowledge of history and the ways of God into a country that has been a beacon attracting pioneers from all parts of the world. But he does expect us to let our lights shine before men that they might see our good works and bring glory to him. And the number one work we can all do is to shine the light of truth of what we do know on the darkness in those around us who've not yet received that light. As parents and grandparents particularly, I'm struck with his commission to us to do what we can't expect others to do for us, impress God's ways and his awesome works of what he has done on the children that he has put in our charge. Teaching them to read is just the start. Modeling for them what to read takes never-ending work. Just like tending a garden— Every season of the garden of our children's lives needs the wisdom and insight gained from the wealth contained in the Scriptures. And if we're not reading the Bible for ourselves, studying the things pertaining to the challenges of the seasons that we're going through, we won't be equipped to help them build up their spiritual strength to identify the traps the devil has set for them along the way. The children of Israel were able to hold on to their freedom only because they could read. But remember... Their literacy alone wasn't the key to their freedom. They could read the Torah, that we refer to as the law. The Torah is what established them as a new nation, a people for God's own possession, with jurisdiction over a land they could only have inherited by divine intervention. But the concept of the law is much broader than the do's and don'ts of moral requirements. Torah means the ways and the teachings of God. God's people were taught by God to read and meditate on the Word of God, the Torah, day and night. It was to be as essential as their daily food. The Torah was addressed to each individual citizen of Israel. It wasn't just for the priests or the military leaders, the counterparts of our pastors and elected representatives, but God's specific direction for His divinely delivered family was dependent on one supremely important assignment— Those he assigned, with the role of priest, were to teach the rest of their family to read the Torah. By the way, it'd be helpful for all of us to reclaim the legacy of using God's terminology instead of the distortions that have evolved in our society because of a lack of careful teaching. What does the word law make most of your own family think in their minds? Well, whatever it is, it certainly doesn't make them think of the marvelous ways and teachings of their Creator, does it? Every believer in God's Messiah, Yeshua, is called a priest in the New Covenant. Just as the Torah equipped and empowered God's people on their way to the Promised Land, so it empowers God's people today when His priests do their job. And do you remember what were the three big themes that the Torah embedded into God's people? They're profoundly relevant to every one of us today. Number one, there's a God who knows every thought and sees every action. Number two... God wants you to be fair. And number three, God will hold you accountable in your afterlife appearance before him. Under Joshua's leadership after taking possession of the land, God prepared for them to apply the insights of his Torah to their daily life in raising up each one of the next generations. But in time, the priests neglecting teaching of the Torah Eventually, during the course of four centuries, God had to raise up judges in the land because everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and the country fell into moral chaos. In the chaos, they begged the prophet Samuel to give them a king, a ruler, like all the pagan nations, and God used that in his sovereign plan to usher them through the tyranny period of Saul to the prophetically pivotal period of David in the golden period of Solomon. And we learn from Scripture that the record of all these providentially guided generations was preserved in writing for our instruction so we might persevere and be encouraged to have hope in God. That's exactly what it says in Romans 15.4. We wouldn't have a clue about unalienable rights if we hadn't at least heard somebody who had read about them. And we wouldn't have that if they hadn't read about them in the Bible. Our concept that our government was created by our countrymen to protect those unalienable rights is known only because we as a people can trace its origin to the historic record of the Bible and the people of the generations leading to our nation's birth. And thus, we can honestly claim that the purpose of government cannot be to grant us rights that we were created by God to enjoy, If we don't read and learn history and God's biblical ways that guided our founding fathers, how would we be able to reason with anybody that it is not the job of our government to sovereignly dictate those basic natural rights and the laws out of existence? So what is this fundamental truth that America is founded on? Our government in America is biblically based and it's providentially established. If we fail to do everything in our power to restore that foundation to this generation, It'll only happen because we didn't make the investment of our time and resources to make it a supreme priority in our reason for living. Our liberty can only be maintained by an enlightened and moral people who know that they depend on divine protection and provision. Thankfully, God is raising up many good leadership voices like Reverend Samuel Langdon in 1775, saying we must keep our eyes fixed on the supreme government of the eternal king, as directing all events, setting up or pulling down the kings of the earth at his pleasure. Their public proclamation that because of the sins of a large part of our country's population, God has allowed our extraordinary government to be corrupted. Only by his intervention with an extraordinary revival of biblical Christ-focused repentance can we remotely hope to prevent our nation from being entirely dissolved. As Harvard's president Samuel Langdon said, we must dare to repeat that nothing but a general reformation of American society can give us any ground to hope that the public happiness will be restored. Rev. Samuel Langdon, speaking to a non-church audience, most of whom attended one form of church or another, took humble and repentant ownership of his community's open sins and neglect of obedience to the demands of biblical truth. Like Langdon, perhaps some of us listening to this message today need to speak to our church and community leaders, inviting them to join us in declaring, let us repent and implore God for his divine mercy. To even think of inviting those in other church communities, let alone people in our secular spheres, to amend our ways, seems unreasonable. So we wonder how is it possible for us to reform everything in society that has been provoking the Most High? How can we hope to obtain the gracious interventions of providence for our deliverance? For any of us, if we don't already have a vibrant prayer team, we can find at least one like-minded person with whom we can pray through the scriptures together, commit to praying together regularly, once a week for starters, Center your time around prayerfully selected passages of Scripture in the Psalms, in the Torah, in the chronicles of the kings of Israel and Judah, and in the prophets of the Bible. Study the book of Acts and see what the radically transformed followers of Jesus did with one another during the first generation after the ascension. May the Lord hear us in this day of trouble. We will rejoice in his salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. When we wonder why is all this evil upon our nation, we can easily see that the general eradication of the godly influence of God's people is because we've forsaken the commission of the Lord to be salt and light, to overcome evil with good, to expose the darkness of our own communities, to rescue those who are perishing because of the evil that is allowed to prevail. So... It isn't a bad idea to pray about where you can be involved with the work God is doing through his soldiers who are courageous to do all they can to stand against the gates of hell as only the ecclesia is enabled by our risen Lord to do so. And most importantly, join with others in being equipped and start teaching your own children more deliberately than ever about the ways of God. Then, like many others have prayed in faith, believing we can say, May our land be purged from all its sins, and then the Lord will be our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble, and we will have no reason to be afraid, though thousands of enemies set themselves against us round about. That was the spirit that emboldened the colonists to declare their independence from Britain the next year and and fight five more years for their lives because of these convictions— as soon as possible, get and read Ecclesia Rising by Pastor Dean Briggs and then invite a good friend to read it with you. I think it will spark a profound enlightening in your advancement in the battle the Lord has prepared you to do for His work of destroying speculations and every lofty thought raised against the knowledge of God.